You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. As rock critics, we like making lists so much that we do them not once, but twice a year. That means it's time for the best albums of 2010 so far. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cotta of the Chicago Tribune. Stay tuned for our mid-year top picks as well as a rock band's perspective on Broadway. Today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. On Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. On Broadway. This weekend, the theater community has its biggest night of the year, the Tony Awards. And you may be thinking, oh no, why is my favorite rock and roll talk show talking about the Tonys? But this year's Broadway really rocks. All four of the nominees for Best Musical have rock roots, including American Idiot, Fela, Million Dollar Quartet, and Memphis. And that marks the height of a long trend towards intersecting theater with popular music. Now, it's a trend that might prompt both diehard theatergoers and hardcore music fans to wince. But before we pass judgment, Jim and I wanted to talk to an expert who's been watching rock and Broadway merge for years. Let's welcome Chris Jones, my colleague, the theater critic at the Chicago Tribune. Chris, what's your take on this? Well, I mean, of those shows you just mentioned, only one of them, Memphis, has an original score. The rest of them are some brand of what we would call jukebox musicals, which is certainly a phenomenon at the moment. You know, I think the economic reasons for this are partly to do with attracting a younger audience to Broadway, that the guaranteed audience for your Rodgers and Hammerstein classics has largely died off. It's as simple as that. And then I've got, of course, in the world of, from the, from the rock musician's perspective, in the world of uh, downloads and the rest of it, that live performance has become a lot more lucrative, obviously. And I think that there's more interest in finding new live, the key being live outlets for their music. And then I think another thing that happened is there were a couple of shows, probably Spring Awakening, Duncan Sheik show, mm-hmm. where if you saw Spring Awakening, you'd have noticed a sort of a different style of music that... One of the reasons that a lot of rockers didn't want to get involved in theater was the need to write a theater song, the uncool quotient of that, if you like, and the fact that you had to end the song in an upbeat way and that the song was supposed to take somebody on some journey and all the rest of it, right, not just moodily fade out in the classic rock way. What Duncan Sheik did is he just simply wrote his regular songs Mm -hmm. and they, they had a parallel show going on. Spring Awakenings about sexual repression amongst uh, teenagers in Germany hundreds of years ago. So they had that show going on. Then they would whip out a microphone and they would sing this Duncan Sheik score that was really a bunch of songs in a very traditional rock way. They didn't follow a linear format. With the taste of dust in your mouth all day But no need to know Like sadness You just Sail away, cause you know I don't do sadness, not even 
I think other people like Green Day saw that and went, oh, well, I guess we don't have to prostitute ourselves to write a Broadway musical. We can actually do our thing and take it from there. Well, let's go through these nominated musicals, Chris, and you give us your thoughts, if you will. Now, for me, as a rock fan, the most startling name to hear come up in discussions of the Tonys is Green Day. I've followed this band from the start of their career playing punk sets at VFW halls, and now they're on Broadway. You know, I mean, really? What (laughs) is going on? Was it any good? Did you like it? I did like it. I think that show is essentially the album on stage is what it is. It's really a music video almost. It is simply a series of visual takes on that album, the American Idiot album. There are three main strands going on. One guy who goes off to Iraq and gets his leg blown off. One guy who gets in a sort of coke-fueled affair with a girl. And one guy who finds himself married with kids. And three slackers, basically. Yeah. Not unlike yourself, who would, who would <laughs> yeah. go through, who go through the, the tra- trajectory of the show. Green Day's music, of course, is very lush and emotional, lots of major keys. And that, that's who they were. They combine. There's a tension in their work, right, between those things. And I think that show, for that reason, Green Day... It's not Sid and Nancy the musical, right? I mean, they, they work in that environment. Summer has come and passed The innocent can never last Wake me up when September ends Like my Tom Kitts, who orchestrated, and that, this is the key reason that show works, is it It kept its sort of punk origins, if you like. He's orchestrated it in such a way that it's both recognizably Green Day and quite different. Like, you know, there's a lot of cello, a lot of acoustic sound mm-hmm. in it, and it creates a kind of real wall of sensual sound. I, I found it kind of, the whole thing kind of a very sensual experience and it mm. didn't feel like Green Day were in any way being exploited or see I haven't been to Broadway as you have all I know is what I saw on the Grammys yes. and I was having a hard time holding my lunch down <laughs> because there is this there is this Broadway way of singing the blood of the martyrs, the water of the meadows of France. Yes. You know, and, and it's like, oh, that's not right with Green Day. No, and that's not, in all, with all due respect, not entirely what they do. I mean, it's... <laughs> the, the, I thought that was a pretty now, good the version, form, actually. The form, Jim, does push you in that direction. I think that's true. But those guys are legitimate singers in a, in a rock tradition, and I think that they don't particularly try to layer it with the Broadway crap, if you like. That's been my big objection, though, Chris, to these hybrid forms where the rock template is sort of overlaid on the Broadway show. Yes. You know, when I saw The Who's Tommy come to Broadway, I was appalled. The essence of that record, in a lot of ways, was Keith Moon's drumming. And then, yes. you know, to take that out of the equation and sort of put this Broadway timpani on top of it, it just ruined it for me. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. But I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. That deaf, dumb, and blind kid still plays a mean pinball. 
I think Broadway has learned the dangers of some of that approach. I mean, yeah. a show that's interesting in this regard is Jersey Boys, I think, where the people that did Jersey Boys realized that people wanted to hear the Bob Gordio or insisted on it that it was the precise original orchestration. So you mm. go to Jersey Boys and you hear, assuming you've got decent performers, you hear pretty much what you heard on that record. Sherry, Sherry, baby, Sherry, Sherry, baby, Sherry, Sherry, baby, baby, Sherry, baby, Sherry, can you come out tonight? Come, come, come out tonight. These songs, of course, are the fabric of our lives, and these people remember where they were when they heard it, and the whole thing is a very enjoyable experience. I think when you went back to the Who's Tommy, there were people messed around with orchestrations more than they now do. I'm not trying to be the great defender of rock musicals because some of them don't. But in the case of um, Green Day, when you have a very good orchestrator who says, okay, well, we're not recreating, the, we don't have the original musicians on the stage. We have a company of 20 kids. What can we do that is true to the integrity of that sound but is not a slavish recre- recreation of it? And I think they've come up with that. How the show is orchestrated and and to what extent the rock component is pushed into some sort of, um, pushed or not, into some sort of book, so to speak, is really one of the key factors. And and I think that, in, in other words, you've seen a loosening of the Broadway stranglehold. Let's talk about another play that's even further afield. Eleven Tony nominations for Fela, yes. based on on the work of the great African musician Fela Kuti. Yes. How does that work, and how do how do they incorporate the music in that? Well, that I would say that show, which is going to about to go out on a national tour, um, so it's probably coming to a city near you. It's directed by Bill T. Jones, who is of course a, chore- a famous choreographer. And that show is really, I would describe as a sort of a recreation of a live performance that comes close to an impression of him, or at least an evocation of him. It's like imagining being at one of these performances, these mythological performances where, you know, revolution was in the air mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing that we all fantasize about having been there. Which is not new. I mean, I remember That's as a true. kid going over to Broadway. I grew up right across the river yeah. in Jersey uh, seeing Beatlemania at the Winter Garden Theater. Yes. And it was exciting. You know, it was just the songs of the Beatles with a lot of video. You know, riots in the streets, girls running around screaming in the right. early days. It worked. But a lot depends on who you get to perform this stuff. Correct. Um, I mean, Fela was a master of Afrobeat. He was combining the uh, American funk with African music and creating this uh, heavily orchestrated music. You know, there was layers and layers of polyrhythms and his saxophone over the top. I mean, huge bands. So who is performing this? Well, it's a guy called San Gaia who just got a uh, Tony nomination. He actually only does the show four shows a week because it's such an exhausting role. And he is, you know, he can do it. He can do everything that that Fela could do. It's probably true that more is pushed off on the band than there was the case in reality. But still, nonetheless, it's a bravura kind of performance. 
Now, the Million Dollar Quartet is a yeah. uh, play that actually had a good long run in Chicago still and is still is, continuing yeah. here, but the, the production in Chicago actually went to Broadway yes. and it scored some Tony nominations. That is the, the day in the life of these four giants of, of Memphis music in the 50s and sort of constructing this story around what happened at Sun Studios that day. Yeah, you've got the night that, you know, young Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins all sort of showed up on the same night, and they all just happened to sing their greatest hits together in the course of the show. (laughs) And uh, the show has a certain raw energy to it. It's a real Wikipedia kind of book. I was just gobsmacked, as they say, when when it got a Tony for Best Book, because... You know, you guys could put that book together in an hour. I mean, <laughs> but it's in the performances. I know you saw it, Greg. Yeah. I mean, they, these guys can really do that music, particularly Levi Christ, who does this sort of knockout Jerry Lee. The guy can play the piano like with his toenails. You know, it's a fine line between Million Dollar Quartet or even Fela and your local corner tribute band exactly. that's doing, you know, The Doors, Crystal Ship tonight. <laughs> yeah. You know, many of those same guys yeah. are yeah. the ones who are going out for these shows. I mean, that's exactly right. There's an economic issue behind here that people are looking, of course, again, live performance is a way to make money. And you don't have to pay a lot of these guys like you have to pay the originals. And so if mm. you can find a way to tap into people's love of Green Day, say, without having to have Green Day there, and you can juice it up in such a way you can charge a comparable ticket price to Green Day being there, then you people are beginning to see there's money to be made. Well, comparable is relative. I mean, Green Day still tours for $30, $35. Right. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah, and the Broadway shows are what? Exa- yeah, exactly. So let's take a little macro view of this. We're talking about roughly about a 40-year tradition where rock pop has sort of flirted with Broadway going back to, uh, you know, Godspell and Hair. And, you know, I remember the big rent scare in the mid-'90s, like, oh, my God, this is going to change everything. It's going to it's the first rock and roll, true rock yes. musical. And I went to see it, and I'm going, if that's a rock yeah, when, <laughs> musical, rock then I'm really, I really want nothing to do with this. But do you feel it's evolved to the point now where there is credibility with the way this music is being presented in Broadway in terms that a rock audience can also appreciate well, it? Well, yes, uh, but that doesn't mean that happens routinely or with every show. I think if you look at American Idiot, you, I, I don't think a Green Day fan is going to walk out of that show finding that the music was exploited in some way. It is a treatment of the music, not that different from the experience in the 80s of watching a video of your favorite artist. And then, of course, you've got demographic realities, right? So that those early rock shows, Greg, that you mentioned, were those were the shows for the kids. So, you know, the kids came out for hair or God's, God's Bell or whatever. Plus there were naked people. And there were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why Jim went. Right. Yeah. And now, you know, those kids are now 50 and 60 years old. Rock and roll doesn't belong to one generation anymore. It's simply part of, you know, Broadway's... A, motivated by profit and you can get the people with the money and the and the habit if you like of going to broadway shows but i also think when you talk about rent in rent jonathan larson who i like nonetheless didn't write a i think you're right it wasn't a rock show it was really a traditional broadway musical with certain contemporary motifs you might Mm -hmm. say Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. Five hundred twenty-five thousand 
I think now, because the rules of the form have been loosened sufficiently, that it's attractive for guys to do what they do in a theater. Like, if you think back to Rent, nothing fades out. Yeah. Everything ends yeah. on a, yeah. you know... Crescendo. On a crescendo, mm-hmm. right. Seasons of Love! It's like that, <laughs> exactly. right? It's not like, uh, Seasons of Love. <laughs> right. And with um, Spring Awakening, the songs just end. Yeah. And that sounds trivial, I appreciate, but it changed a lot with that one thing. So, so thinking like a rock critic, not a theater critic, give us your best and your worst ever merger of these two forms we love, theater and rock and roll. Well, there's, <laughs> there are two shows popping in my head for the worst. All Shook Up, which was an Elvis musical set in a small town where an Elvis-like character arrives. That was terrible <laughs> and, and truly heinous. And then the other one, it almost pains me to say this, but it's true that Twyla Tharp, the great choreographer, yeah. and, you know, Twyla Tharp, of course, did Moving Out, which I thought was a fabulous show and a great, great treatment of the music of Billy Joel. But she took on Bob Dylan, and that was, <laughs> yeah. man, that was that was really, really bad. Yeah. And you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Now, the two good shows I've mentioned already, I mean, I think American Idiot is masterful, and, and it creates an overwhelming soundscape of Green Day's music. And then the other one, I think, clearly is Jersey Boys. If you're going down the nostalgia route, which we all laugh at, but we all like to go back, and you've got to give them what they originally heard. And the, you know, and the symphonic choir version of what they heard doesn't do mm, it. Yeah. And doing that routinely, night after night, with the demands of Broadway, with lots of different singers all the time, is difficult to do, and that, that show managed to do it. We've been talking about Rock on Broadway with Chicago Tribune theater critic Chris Jones. Chris, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. My pleasure. Coming up on Sound Opinions, it's time for Greg and me to name our favorite albums of 2010 so far. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media.
Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. And it's time for us to take stock of the last six months. We're midway through 2010. We're going to look at our choices so far for the best records that we've heard. Because, Greg, we get asked all the time, right? I mean, the, the single most frequent question we get, you know, so what are your favorite records lately? Yeah. And, I mean, unless I have the list going at all times, I'm always like, uh. <laughs> I don't know. And it's not because I don't know. It's because I have a 100 of them, and they're all in contention. And, you know, that's why we have to do this show twice a year, at the end of the year and then midway through, <laughs> take stock. As is usual with these shows, we like to flip a coin to decide who gets to go first. Two great rock critics on this one, uh, Nick Tosh's on my side. Yeah, and I'll go with the pioneering rock critic Richard Meltzer on my side. And it's in the air, and it's Nick Tosh's. That means I get to go first. Greg, we actually heard a little bit of the first record I want to spotlight coming into this segment, LCD Sound System, their third studio album. It is called This Is Happening. You might recall when we reviewed this a few weeks ago, I said that the third effort by LCD Sound System was the least of their three albums so far. However, I haven't been able to stop listening to it since, and LCD Sound System, even when it's not as good as the last two albums, is still better than almost everything else I've heard in 2010. To recap, James Murphy was a producer who started a record label and a production team, both named DFA. This is his labor of love basement band that has broken wide. You know, they're playing a lot of festivals throughout the summer. Wonderful mix of dance, punk, and art rock, weird guitars and synthesizers, undeniable grooves, and Murphy doing the vocals on top, kind of previously singing in, in a monotone, flat way but really stretching this third time around to do a little bit of Brian Ferry Roxy music or David Bowie at his most theatrical. It shouldn't work, but somehow it does. And the the melodies and the overall good vibe of everything LCD Sound System does is pretty irresistible. I want to hear You Wanted a Hit. Here's LCD Sound System on Sound Opinions. You wanted a hit But maybe we don't do And try, it ends up feeling kind of wrong. You wanted it tough, but is it ever tough enough? No, nothing's ever tough enough until we hit the road. Yeah, you wanted it lush, but honestly, you must hush. Yeah. 
That's LCD Sound System from their third album. This is happening. The song was You Wanted a Hit. I think it is, Greg. What's your first pick? Yeah, Jim, we're running down some of our favorites at the mid-year, and here's a record that I missed when it came out in the U.K. last year. It finally got released in the U.S. earlier this year. It is the debut album from an artist named V.V. Brown called Traveling Like the Light. She is the latest in a wave of neo-soul singers that have come out in uh, England in the last few years, sort of the post-Amy Winehouse wave, you know, the Adele's and the Duffy's and the Corinne Bailey Ray's. Mm-hmm. She's sort of been lumped in with that group, but I think she's much more exciting than any of those other singers. She started out her career as a songwriter. She'd written hits for the Pussycat Dolls and Sugar Babes, but don't hold that against her. This is not a unified album in the way that, say, an Adele or a Duffy album sounds. It's more like a collection of pop singles, and I think that's where that background as a songwriter comes through. But what I love about it is the urgency and the exuberance of this record. She rocks. You know, there's a blend of new wave, girl group pop from the early 60s, going back to even rockabilly and doo-wop, bringing all that to the table here with a very fresh look and a very fresh sound. Not as persuasive as a ballad singer, but when she ups that tempo, look out. It, it's a breakup album, but it's not a, not a self-pitying one. She's blitzing right past this guy who'd done her wrong, and I think the song that embodies that mode best is Crying Blood. Here it is from V.V. Brown, the new album Traveling Like the Light on Sound Opinions.
Crying Blood from V.V. Brown. The album is Traveling Like the Light, one of my mid-year favorites. What's next for you, Jim? Greg, I'm going to go with the third album by the best virtual hip-hop group in history. Not that there's any competition. Mm. Gorillaz, Plastic Beach. When we reviewed this when it came out a couple of months ago, I, I said how much I liked the weird, sustained dark and threatening mood. It really sucks you in. It's not an easy listen, but it surely is a rewarding one. It has grown for me even more in recent weeks because of the way it echoes the tragedy in the Gulf, the BP explosion and the oil slick that is uh, threatening half of America's beaches, it seems. This is a concept album, if you recall. Damon Albarn, the vocalist and leader of the Gorillas, the former talent of Blur, getting together with the uh, visual artist Jamie Hewlett of Tank Girl fame. They are telling this story of a floating island of trash alienating humanity from the natural world. As I said, boy, does that sound particularly timely now. It's a great album and a great moody album. Lousy with cameo appearances, like many hip-hop records, but in this case, it works. It's not gratuitous. When you have everybody from Bobby Womack to De La Soul to Mick Jones and Paul Simonon from The Clash dropping in. But nobody ever follows Lou Reed, the grouchiest man in show business. He pops up on a track called Some Kind of Nature, which I think spins off of Some Kind of Love by the Velvet Underground. Here's Lou Reed with Gorillaz on Sound Opinions. Some Kind of Nature... Some kind of soul, some kind of mixture, some kind of gold, some kind of majesty, some chemical load. Some kind of metal made up from glue, some kind of plastic I could wrap around you. You need to eat man-made, they wear phony clothes, they sit with our picture, and build it, oh, 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 oh. some kind of nature, some kind of soul, some kind of mixture, some kind of gold, some kind of majesty, some chemical load. Well, me, I like plastics and digital foils. Wrap up the sound and protect the girls from the spiritual poison you spell at night. Like phony clothes, but I really like mice. Some kind of nature. Some kind of nature. Some Kind of Nature from Gorillaz, one of Jim DeRogatis' mid-year picks. Jim, you mentioned the hip-hop connection with Gorillaz, the best virtual hip-hop band in existence, as you called them. I'm going to go with another artist who has a sort of a left-field take on hip-hop, Dessa, out of Minneapolis, with her debut album, A Badly Broken Code. What I like about this album is that, again, it doesn't fit into categories, much the way Gorillaz doesn't fit into any one category conveniently. She's actually a philosophy major out of the University of Minnesota, started out in the spoken word scene, 
and then gravitated into hip-hop. What I'm hearing a little bit in this record is some mid-90s Portishead, a little bit of that British trip-hop vibe. You know, there's some sung melodies in here that are just absolutely beautiful. There's a blend of driving hip-hop loops, but also that mellow atmosphere that you would expect from a ballad singer. There's straight-up rap, there's spoken word, there's a little bit of R&B flavor to some of the choruses. Again, it doesn't fit in very conveniently anywhere. The one unifying force is this very smart, very personable voice at the center of it. She's singing and rapping about her life, bringing a very personal take to hip-hop in a way that a lot of artists out there, frankly, aren't these days. This is a, a wondrous record, not only because the subject matter is unique, but also because the hooks are there. Every song has a melody to it that sticks in your head for days, and everybody I've been playing it for has the same reaction to it. Who is this? Where do I get it? It's Dessa with a badly broken code, and here's a song called Dixon's Girl on Sound Opinions. Storm in Jackson when you and I met at a club called St. Sebastian's. But the sign said something different. I remember thinking that I didn't have a shot at Mississippi television. Told us which roads they were closing. There goes a rap show. Everybody knew you as the wife of a famous man. Everybody who knew said, There goes Dixon's girl again. Even the walls only closer when she plays the piano real soon. I haven't met too many women in this business that I really like, like, like. You could hold a little liquor, you could hold a conversation, you could hold your own mic. And even that night, I learned the truth about your man. You gotta be big to treat pretty girls bad. And it's not much, but my money's on you. It's not much, but my money's on you. From the rest of the world, you're in trouble. Bad news moves like fire that you fight and fall. And I'm too far away, my world wishing can't touch you. But I think of you more than you might suppose. Uh, everybody wanna see you with your hair down, wanna hear you hit the high note, wanna know what they can get you for a little last girl. I don't, I know how the stones can fly. Had some hard goodbyes, call me up day and night, free drinks and bad it's advice. That is Dessa with Dixon's Girl from a new album called A Badly Broken Code, one of my mid-year picks for best albums of the year so far. If you have sound opinions you want to share on the air, leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Tim and I are going to be back after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media with the rest of our top albums of 2010 so far.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and we are having a great time going down some of our favorite albums of the year so far. Midway through 2010, we're not saying these are the best records of the year because we reserve that right until we're at the end of mm-hmm. 2010, but we sure are having fun. Playing records we love, Greg, that includes, for me, the self-titled debut by Broken Bells. I think expectations were so high for this collaboration between producer Brian Burton, better known as Danger Mouse, the auteur behind the Grey album and Gnarls Barkley and Beck's last record, and James Mercer, the leader of that wonderful jangly pop band, Natalie Portman's favorite, The Shins. People built this record in their head before they ever heard it, and yeah. then it came out and it was a letdown. I think you were a little bit in that group. But but if you listen to it, not paying any attention to the pedigrees of these two fine musicians, it's a wonderful irresistible but very arty pop record by that I mean a little bit skewed I'm going to drop a name you always give me guff for (laughs) it reminds me of Brian Eno's early pop records Another Green World Here Come the Warm Jets in that it's not predictable pop the hooks come from strange places but I, I love this record I can't get enough of it this is a song called Your Head is on Fire by Broken Bells on Sound Opinions Your Head is on Fire. Talk about an Eno-esque song title, eh, Greg? (laughs) That's Broken Bells on Sound Opinions. Do you have another top record of the year so far? I do, Jim, and uh, I know it's one you're going to like. We've both loved this band over the years. In fact, they've been guests on Sound Opinions in the past. Their 2007 record was terrific. I think this new one is even better. The Besnard Lakes Montreal Quartet with an album called The Besnard Lakes Are the Roaring Night. 
husband and wife team at the center of this band, uh, Jace Lasik and Olga Gorias, are the primary songwriters and singers in this band. And what they do is bring together some of that orchestral splendor of 60s Beach Boys, specifically the Brian Wilson orchestrated stuff, you know, circa Pet Sounds and Surf's Up, and those wonderful harmonies. I mean, Jace Lasik has a voice that is otherworldly, a tenor that I can only compare to Brian Wilson's. I mean, when you have some of those falsetto notes, you're thinking, my God, this is one of the most beautiful sounds on earth. And then you mix it with those heavy, heavy, dense guitars, uh, a little bit of that shoegazer, British rock, My Bloody Valentine vibe, circa 1990. It's a wonderful combination of sounds. And what they've done on this record is they really build it into these huge crescendos, big melodies developing very patiently over eight, nine minutes sometimes with big payoffs at the end. You know, you think eight, nine minutes, they're a jam band. No, every part is carefully orchestrated, and they definitely reward that patience. There aren't a whole lot of slack moments on this record. One great melody after another. The Besnard Lakes Are the Roaring Night is the name of the album, and here's a track called Glass Printer on Sound Opinions. Printer from the Besnard Lakes are the Roaring Night. Also one of my favorites this year, Greg. Nice choice. Always nice when you agree with me. <laughs> I am going to choose one more record to wrap this up. Yaysayer's Odd Blood. I think it's uh, absolutely my top record so far this year. Not going to commit. we still got six more months. I hope to hear another dozen records this great. 
one of the slipperiest things about psychedelic rock is that it's not a genre that you can really get your hands on. You can't say, you know, what is psychedelia because it's about embracing elements of everything from all over. I think that's what Yesayer does. You know, there are there are hints of hip-hop in here. There are hints of dance rock. There's electronic music. And there's that great, like the Besnard Lakes, kind of harmony-laden pop sound of the 60s. They up that quotient a little bit here and and back off a little bit on the world beat rhythms of their last album, this, this uh, experimental Brooklyn combo. But I love it. It's hypnotic. It's entrancing. It's melodic. And it grows with every listen, which is not something you can say about a lot of records. came out in February. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. been playing it nonstop since, and I'm pretty sure I'm still going to be playing it at the end of December. Here is a song called O-N-E, by Yesayer from Odd Blood on Sound Opinions.
That is O-N-E by Yesayer from the Odd Blood album You Need to Hear It. And I have a hint, Mr. Cott, that your next album is one that we both really thought people need to hear. And in fact, we arm wrestled about who got to talk <laughs> about it. I'm just going to say that right now. There's no doubt about it, Jim. I mean, we are both huge fans of the debut album by Janelle Monet, The Arc Android. We both gave it very enthusiastic buy it ratings on a recent show here at Sound Opinions. And, you know, it needs to be said, this is one of the best records, not only the last six months, but I'm thinking the like, last couple of years that I've heard. I, this is the kind of record that makes you and me want to run up and down the street, <laughs> grabbing people by the lapels and saying, you got to hear this now! <laughs> you, absolutely. And the 18 songs, you would think they're each one by a different artist, but they're unified by this, this concept. You know, she has this overriding concept that some people can take or leave. I understand, you know, this android comes back from the future and tells, tells the world about breaking the chains of oppression that hold people down. I think the big message here is freedom. It's about the freedom to be yourself, about the freedom to reinvent yourself, about the freedom to try on any musical style that suits your fancy. You know, she's talking to women. She's talking to African Americans. She's talking to independent artists here on this record. And and she's all over the map musically. Again, it's maybe one of those things that people don't like about the album because they don't like all these different styles merging together. I think it's one of its great strengths. She brings it together with her passion as a singer, with the unity of that overriding theme, but most of all, just with the fact that every one of these songs has got a hook in it that you cannot forget. The track I'm going to play is not necessarily representative of the album because there's nothing else on the album quite like it, but it shows you the breadth of her style. When you think Janelle Monet, you think Atlanta, you think R&B artists, you think it's going to sound a certain way. Well, listen to this track. This may blow your mind because it doesn't sound like anything in the R&B world right now. It's called Come Alive, War of the Roses from Janelle Monae on Sound Opinions.
That is Come Alive, War of the Roses by Janelle Monet from her startling debut album, The Ark Android. If you'd like to see a list of all of our picks so far in 2010 for the best albums, you can go to soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to bear our souls. We are going to reveal our guilty pleasures. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, who, if she was a Broadway character, would be Annie, and Jason Saldana, the Phantom of the Opera, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. Well, I guess he's sort of Billy Elliot. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Jim. Hi, Greg. BJ calling from Chicago. Loved this week's show. But I couldn't help but notice that you said that next week's show is going to be dedicated to the vocoder. I have a quick suggestion. Uh, A really good album by a great artist who no one's pretty much ever heard of is an old Neil Young album from around 1981 called Trends, where he uses a drum computer, programmable synth, and a vocoder. They're pretty cool. Check it out. Take care. Have a good weekend. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Reese from Boston, and I'm calling because I just listened to your review of the Betty LeVette Covers album, and I just wanted to say thank you for giving it a double trash it. I think far too often these classic soul voices kind of get a pass just on the beauty of their voice, and when I heard the uh, Wish You Were Here clip that you played, I just thought it was so boring and so uninspired, and I was worried that you would give it a burn it just based on the her voice being so beautiful and I'm so glad to hear that you both had the guts to call it out on the craft that it is. Keep up the good work and I'll keep listening. Thanks, guys. So you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail Do you think you can tell? Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Joe from Tulsa. First of all, love you a lot. Second of all, Betty LeVette was on NPR Wiggly. Don't tell me talking about all the songs she picked for her recent record. And she said that someone brought her 500 songs and she said, pick 12. Greg said she picked songs that meant something to her. And that just kind of cracked me up. And she just told somebody to pick 12. Anyway, keep up the great work. Love you, guys. For a lead role in a cage. 
Hey guys, my name is Brenna Peace and I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Just wanted to follow up about your discussion about concert ticket prices. For all your talk about how ridiculous Fish is and its fans, I thought it would be worth pointing out that they actually do a pretty good job of upholding your democratic value system of ticket prices. They offer all tickets at all levels at the same price to every fan, and they have a lottery system where you can put your name in a hat, essentially, with thousands of other fans and get any ticket um, at any part of any venue. And it's a pretty cool thing because they could definitely be charging at least twice the price, and I'm sure their uh, extremely devoted fan base would dole out the cash for it. It's a nice thing to see in, in today's market. I'm floating in the blip a lot. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.